Hark, it's the 87th Precinct podcast. This is the only podcast in the world dedicated to Ed McBain's 87th Precinct Mysteries, the genre-defining series of police procedural novels, which began in 1956 with Cop Hater, and ended in 2005 with the novel Fiddlers. There were 55 books in the series, and today's podcast is all about book number 26, Sadie When She Died. My name's Paul Abbott, and to review the book, I'm joined by two of the most notorious Christmas time shoplifters in the city. Mr. Stephen, Hark the Herald Angels Gone, Royston, and Mr. Morgan, Away with a Manger, Brown. Good Hello. evening. Good evening. I did a lot of work there getting a carol based pun to tie this into the book there, nice. you see. Time well spent. Yes, indeed. So, anyway, as usual, we appeal, dear listeners, to you for your support. Please share, rate and review the podcast on whatever app it is you use. It's really helpful to us to get more people to hear it. And if you like what we do enough to contribute financially, then please consider buying us a digital coffee at www.ko-fi.com slash hark87podcast. And anything we get will go back into the costs of running the show. I've got a tiny little bit more housekeeping before we start, and that is that if you haven't listened to it yet, then I recently put out a podcast, a side pod, all about the Richard Marston book Rocket to Luna, which featured our first returning guest, which was my brother, Gary Abbott. Uh, It's uh, one of his juvenile sci-fi stories from the early 50s. So please do go and have a listen to that if you haven't already. And if there's anything else, McBain, Hunter, Marston, Lombino, whatever that you'd like us to cover as a spin-off at any time, let us know. And maybe if you bought us a digital coffee, (laughs) buy us a drink first, and uh, maybe we'll do something about it for you. But um, we'll turn our attention now to Sadie when she died. But we'll try and get it into context. But not the broader context. That's moved into the bonus podcast. So if you want to know all about 1972, you need to listen to the bonus episode. But we'll we'll have a look at what Evan Hunter was up to in, in 1972 or thereabouts. Is that all right? That sounds good. Yeah, perfectly fine, I would say. So he was a busy chap in 1972, as he normally was. He was busy most of the time. I'd been compiling a list of his writings for, for research, and boy, there was a lot of stuff. And by 1972, he's sort of calmed down a bit. Hmm which as a man who's got a very established career by that point, you can sort of understand, but probably in comparison to many people's writing careers, he still looks to be going yeah. 10 to the dozen. So I'll tell you a little bit about what came out. So obviously Sadie When She Died is the book that we're going to look at today. That's the 87th Precinct novel from this era. Mm-hmm. He published a book called Every Little Crook and Nanny. Oh, yes. That's a farce, I think, a sort of um, a mafia farce. <laughs> that popular genre. Yeah. I think you can probably work backwards from the title to what actually happens in the in the book itself. I, I imagine that's kind of how the book was written, yeah. really. Yeah. Well, he does admit that he uses titles <laughs> and sort of works from there. But Every Little Crook and Nanny was also uh, abridged and released in a copy of Cosmo mm-hmm. and in Star Weekly, that Canadian one oh, that yeah. sometimes features 87th Precinct things. Perhaps he was trying to cash in on the uh, Godfather success. Well, he may well have been. I, you know, it's uh, it was in the air, wasn't it? All it that was, stuff. Yeah. He also released. I'm checking down my little list here. An early version of the next book we're going to look at was published in Argosy magazine. A story called "Sympathy for the Devil," published in Seventeen magazine, which was a magazine for seventeen-year-olds. Just seventeen-year-olds. Just seventeen-year-olds. If you tried to look at it at the ages of sixteen or eighteen, you... there was a magazine oh, called yeah. Just Seventeen. Yeah, there was, there was actually, well, yeah. yeah, there was in the UK. This uh, this same thing, really. I think. I don't think Just Seventeen particularly published much uh, Evanston material. <laughs> Not that I remember. <laughs> no. It was for yeah girls, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, I think this was. I think this is a sort of ju- you know sort of juvenile fiction thing again. Still, occasionally wrote them. He wrote a thing called The Telegram Code under his pseudonym John Abbott, Ooh. which was in Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine. And he also put out a collection called The Easter Man, a play and six stories. The mm. Easter Man. The Easter Man was one of the plays that he did, also known as A Race of Hairy Men, that was put, put on in, in... Come again? A Race of Hairy Men. <laughs> 
that was on in the UK and in uh, America later. But this is a, some of his short stories and that play in a book. Okay. And also in Germany, in Playboy Germany, mm-hmm. he published a story called Er hatte so leicht by Erlanden Kernen, which is, I think, how it's pronounced. Excellent. Which translates as he could easily land with her. I don't really know what land means there, whether it's a double meaning in the way it's used or... Mm. Almost certainly, surely. Playboy. Yeah. So, you know, he was quite busy still writing all these various little bits and pieces. Mm. And on telly and screen, every little crook and nanny, which had come out as a book in 72, also came out as a film in 1972. Mm. And it starred Victor Mature and Lynn Redgrave. So Richard Neesden. (laughs) (laughs) And Lynn Neesden. (laughs) There's a reference for people to look up. <laughs> uh, the Czechoslovakian love of McBain adaptation oh. starts in this year with a thing called Zabijak. I think that's pronounced. Oh, that's pronounced. Which I think is based on Cop Hater. It's made for TV. Not Zabadak. <laughs> no, I was, was going to say. say. <laughs> Adapted from the Dave D. Dorsey B. McIntyre hit of yeah. the same name. They could all play members of the squad, <laughs> couldn't they? Probably mooted at one point. Dave Dears, <laughs> Lieutenant Burns. <laughs> Who would Dozy be? Teachers, Hal Willis. <laughs> I presume most of our listening audience will be at least passingly aware of Dave D, Dozy, Beaky, Mick and Titch as a Who? Who rock isn't? combo. <laughs> I assume everyone is. Yeah. And their hit Zabadak. Yeah. But the, yeah, the film of Fuzz came out in 1972 as well, oh, yeah. which I've covered on another podcast mm-hmm. elsewhere. Mm. You know, plenty going on for, mm-hmm. for Mr. Evan Hunter, Ed McBain, but we're going to concentrate on Sadie when she died, which mm. was featured in Alfred Hitchcock's Mystery Magazine in an abridged version, mm. but that was not until January 1973. Mm. So I hand straight over to you guys for initial thoughts on Sadie when she died, especially given that the last story we looked at was Hail, Hail, the Gang's All Here, which is a totally different type of book. Mm. So where are we with this? I suppose my overall impression of the book is a slight, quite sombre tone. It's quite a serious book and quite... Uh, yeah, I'd agree with you. ...darker than usual. Uh, yeah, definitely. Certainly felt absent of the lighter touches that you get. Yeah. Probably wouldn't score very highly in bingo terms, I wouldn't thought. Very low score. Yeah, I think um, Well, I've got a note about that. You know, we talk about this... This mythical bingo card for the 87th Precinct, which has all these features that you could... In theory, there'd be one book that would tick all of the boxes. Yeah. And I, I think of a bingo card as being like a 5 by 5 grid. Yeah. And I haven't got 25 things. No, it's very but- low. Very, very low in that. Uh, if the previous book was a bit of a celebration, this seems to be a bit of a, a purposefully darker tone, I would yeah, say. compared to the last one, this is very... Yeah, sombre. Sombre's a good word. It's like kind of depressing all the way through, really, in terms of what's gone on and happening, and then ends incredibly depressingly as well, doesn't <laughs> it? It kind of foreshadows some of the, the, the sort of darker, later entries in the series. Mm. Some of the ones sort of around the early 90s, I guess. Yeah, yeah I think possibly, so. Yeah. I think he even seeds some of the things that come into, mm. into the later books in this, mm. or at least some of the sort of tonal, tonal yeah. things. Yeah, but yeah, so. back to that bingo card thing. Like I was, I'm, I made a note of this here. It does have a lot of the stuff, but only as very sort of quick mm. snippets. Yeah. So like, there's no extended descriptions of the cops, but there is like eyewitnesses see Corella in sort of racist terms. Yeah, that, or, yeah I'll pay like brief lip service to those descriptions that we've already had in fuller terms previously, but it's, yeah. you don't get the whole kind of spiel, do you? Yeah, yeah. A very brief city is a woman. Passing yeah. reference. Yeah, Monhun and Monroe are in, but you don't get a fact, you know the usual page and a half of them yeah. wisecracking. They just mentioned. Aren't I they, would almost? feel I would feel guilty ticking the bingo card for some of these ones hmm. on this one because it is literally these are passing descriptions. Yeah. The only thing I've, you definitely get for this is Maya does tell a joke mm-hmm. in full in the squad room, which is definitely on the bingo oh, card. Yeah. And there are a couple of reproduction yes. printed things in there. Yeah. I suppose the only one that gets a real tick is that the weather is featured quite heavily mm. in this, as it's a Christmas time story. This, which is why I was talking about Christmas time at the start of the uh, introduction, <laughs> I wasn't just going mad. <laughs> as we're sat here in one of the nicest days we've had for a little while, and it's been quite warm and sunny, so it's always strange to be reading a Christmas book 
that is so properly Christmas. Well, Christmassy in the sense of weather, not in terms of jollity and <laughs> kindness. But yeah, I agree with you entirely about the bingo card. So, And it's also, I thought as well, and we do like to mention this frequently, it was a bit Columbo-ish as well, I thought. <laughs> Again, in on the, my list. In that, <laughs> well, you led to believe or... You led to believe that they know who has committed a certain crime, just like you do in Colombo, really. And it's, will, you know, they be able to prove it? Or did the person indeed do what they think they did without giving it away? Yeah, um, I'm totally and so up for it's, the Columbo thing. Yeah, there's less red herrings in terms of, a, you know, the usual investigation, mm. you know, which is in quite a lot of the other books. It's a little bit of a... Yeah, cat and mouse with yeah, with one individual the, for yeah, the, the entire less book, of the wider ranging investigation and the blind alleys and and everything that you get. Yeah. yeah, I can see that. But if you think of it in terms of Columbo, so we know that two eighty seventh precinct stories were adapted for Columbo. Whereas I was reading this and thinking, why wasn't this adapted? Because this is almost a Columbo mm. story. Yeah, it's, the, yeah, the main villain is basically taunting the lead investigator mm-hmm. by hanging around with him. <laughs> I know Columbo normally hangs around with the other people, but there are certain stories of Columbo where they always keep meeting and it, yeah. like, it's from the villain sort of thinks that sticking close to the investigator is going to get him off. <laughs> what baffles me is this was never adapted to for anything. No. I, think, well, I say that it was never adapted as a Columbo, obviously. There's been a couple of Japanese TV series, one in the 90s, 2000s, one in... 1980, and I think there may have been an episode based on this in each of those two Japanese things, but it's very hard to tell because the Japanese translation tools in Google make everything (laughs) very bizarre, Mm. and you get sort of lists of who plays who, and it's got just random words like ocelot in the middle of it, and you're thinking, is this supposed to be enigmatic, or is it just a mistranslation? Or or did they actually cast an ocelot as that character? Yeah. Sadie Collins is played by an ocelot. (laughs) But... In terms of a bit of trivia, there is in the Evan Hunter archive evidence that he adapted it as a teleplay, but there's no evidence for what that was for. Oh, right. So in 1980, I think I've got a little list somewhere. Where are you? Yeah, October, November 1980. There we go. It just says he wrote a teleplay based on this, but just doesn't say what for. Oh, perhaps it was. Perhaps it was Columbo. Perhaps it was know. an early attempt to get one of his. Uh, yeah. Hmm. Which um, yeah, I don't know. Oh, it just seems it seems odd that it just never out of mm. all of the ones because so many of them get made and remade mm. out of the adaptations. It's true, yeah. How peculiar! But in other ways, it's totally atypical and, and is exactly what an eight seventh precinct novel is. You know, it's an investigation of a crime mm. with a bit of colour in Indeed. the you know in the squad room thrown in along the way. Do you want to hear some uh, reviews from the time? I would love to see yeah. if they see if they chime with your views or whether we want to shout at anyone with silly names. So a guy called Matthew Cody in uh, an article called Doc Briefs in The Guardian, 26th of October, 1972. This time a solo for the 87th Precinct's detective Steve Carella. It's not really. Mm. He does do stuff with other cops. Hmm. Nympho housewife is murdered. A junkie confesses. The truth, more sad than sensational, reveals McBain as a transatlantic simenon. Ooh. Oh, I think it says that on the yeah. back of yeah. Everyone went leaping for their copies of the book because it's a quote on the back of them. I think there actually is a direct reference to May Gray in this because at one point he talks about the notion of Cherche la Femme being a reason for crime and it's um, he says that's surely more to do with the surete of Stevo's holding up a massive volume of Georges Zimmernon May Gray novels. And so we've now got a black and white photo of, of Simonon looking at us with his pipe and his bow tie and his glasses. And looks, a, a mod- George. looks a bit cheeky, doesn't he? He does. Then perhaps moderately surprised. He does, caught yeah. slightly off guard. Yeah, he wasn't expecting that. Someone's caught him in his pipe shed by the looks of it. There's lots of pipes <laughs> behind him. Yeah, he has, hasn't he? Anyway, yeah, yeah, I just okay. thought uh, that to hand, unplanned. That was bonus uh, Georges Simonon making an appearance there for you all. But yeah, he doesn't say anything directly about a Maigret story, but he does talk about the Surete. And in terms of crime fiction, you know, that's what where Maigret's based, isn't he? He's a member of the Surete, the, the French police. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's where I think there's a, a a tie in there anyway. Yeah, quite plausibly. Now, do we all remember the 
wonderfully named Newgate Calendar from who took over the Criminals at Large review column in in the New York Times. Oh yeah. So Anthony Bowsher, long gone, and the sad times. What's this person called? Newgate Calendar. Yeah, we talked about it last yeah. time, and probably another time before. I've forgotten. Well, you. It's because they're not words you'd put together in your head no. as a name, really, is it? <laughs> but he says it is McBain's twenty-fifth novel. Well, yeah, novel if you going to be fussy about the empty hours about his 87th precinct cops this one deals with a husband whose wife is found murder murdered she isn't found murder the murderer is found but is he really the murderer the cops think not everything is solved in a rather anticlimactic manner McBain is a professional enough writer but this book will give the reader no more pause than the average TV crime show everything is slick and preordained he's a misery guts he's a calendar he's a rotter that Unigate dairies. I'm yeah. not having them at all. I don't know that slick is necessarily a. Uh, I know it can be applied like a negative mm. thing, but you know he is a slick writer. I think in times, and I think that's to the credit of the books, though, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, yeah. Not really a criticism, I don't think. But, Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I. Yeah, I do not agree. Yeah. Strongly disapprove. Let's write a letter to the New York Times, 10th of December, 1972. <laughs> One quick one uh, from Morris Richardson in Crime Ration in The Observer. One of the very best of the 87th Precinct saga. Mm. So I've just took out that little quote there, which I think is... Marvellous. I'm quite happy to agree with, really. Yeah, it works for me. So who wants to outline what goes on? Why is this called Sadie when she died? (laughs) I'll let Morgan have a stab. Oh, God, don't make me do it. Well, (laughs) Well, I've kind of given a little teaser of what's gone on so did Newgate Calendar indeed yeah uh, well he did he, he, in a slightly um, derisive, derisive yeah. yeah that's the exact word I was looking for yeah it's it, interesting though because at first it, you, we don't think there is a character called Sadie who's the Sadie no idea you don't find out for a good good long while actually uh, there's a, a Sarah Fletcher who's been been murdered yeah we open right in the crime scene Guts all over the place. In a burglarised apartment. Yep, absolutely. The uh, body in the bedroom and footprints in the kitchen yep. and windows smashed. and Knife still in the wound. And a... Uh, Fingerprints on the knife. And a husband who's just returned saying, I'm glad she's dead. A lawyer who really enjoys making pronouncements that make him sound really guilty. Yeah. Yeah, it's quite strange, that, really. And then... Uh, uh, C- Corella's just absolutely convinced that this guy's killed her somehow. He's just got the instinct, hasn't he? He mm. feels yes, like this guy the... is basically telling him it without yeah. saying it. Yeah, and yet they find the burglar uh, through fairly conventional uh, means because he had to yeah. jump out of a second-story window and hurt his leg. And there's a, a witness who lives in the block of flats yeah. uh, who uh, is well, able to then identify this person who the, had to go to the doctors and gave his real name. A, a, he's not exactly a master criminal, no, is he? No, he's yeah, kind of a, a total novice. And he's arrested and, and it's, he... And that's the end of chapter two. Admits the, to like, having... Yes, yeah, that's him. Crime solved. He admits to having stabbed this woman and feel, that, that's the, feels that's genuinely the end of it. pretty bad about it actually seems like seems like an all right guy really doesn't he? yeah. he's okay he's t- made some bad decisions but he's a junkie basically and he yeah was, he was burglarizing to make some money to get some drugs yeah which is the usual bottom line of those stories yeah, but if you actually put chapters one and two out as a short story <laughs> you could actually play a clever little game there of, of making it seem like the opposite of what actually happens in the book would happen, where you would be thinking, oh, it's definitely the husband, and in the end it turned out to be... Oh, it's just... Just a junkie. (laughs) Such is interesting, really. Yeah. But basically, then, the rest of it plays out as this cat and mouse, Mm. doesn't it? Between... Yeah. Well, Burns, against his better judgment, allows them to... Surveil. Yeah, have surveillance on... um, on Mr. Fletcher. But Mr. Fletcher almost kind of actively... Well, he, he does actively kind of invite Corella into... Because drinking with him on a pub, pub crawl. Yeah, a very pointedly chosen pub crawl. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's all... Yeah, it's all all a bit 
strange, really, because because the way the Fletcher character develops is like in, certainly initially and for most of the book, he, you know, is he's, he's this arrogant kind of taunting. You, you'll never prove it, and he's just being a bit strange, isn't he? And you get the feeling he's doing it all through his like sheer arrogance, really. Yeah. But then towards the end of the book. Uh, you start getting the feeling it's not really arrogance, really. It's kind of some... He's almost willing to be found, isn't he? He kind of almost starts going out of his way that he he hopes that the truth will be discovered. That's the impression I got. Certainly at the very end, Mm. because he, he could have just so easily... Not done what he did, you know. Ultimately, does really. Absolutely. There's also a bit of a sense of him kind of wanting to to justify himself as well. Yeah. He's expl- explaining why he's done what he's done without actually admitting it, but comes kind of it does everything but admit that he's actually done it. And, yeah. So he yeah. kind of wants to. He's kind of yeah. It's like he's almost punishing himself, but I don't know. Yeah, it's quite a. Yeah, complex it's, character as well. Yeah, that there's, it's quite psychologically interesting. He's not just a sort of straight out of the box kind of psychopath or anything, is no. he? Uh, Who would you have play him out of the Columbo villains? Well, cast? oh, what's the guy with the? Um, he played quite a few. Uh, oh, Robert Culp. Yes, him. Yeah. him. Yeah. It could be Robert Culp. Yeah, yeah, yeah. lawyer type. Yeah, definitely. So you're not going to get William Shatner in for this role? <laughs> no, Donald Pleasance. No, no, I think, uh, yeah, Culp, yeah. Culp, one of the returning ones. Yeah. yeah. Or perhaps Patrick McGowan, you know. You always get good value yeah. for money with the Patrick oh, yeah. it's not a, story. It's not a, what's his name, Cassidy one, is it? No, uh, yeah. it's not a, a um, Martin Landau one. No. <laughs> if only it were. Well, it, everything is in well, our Yeah, heart, maybe Culp. Yeah, because like Corella kind of gets on with him quite well as well, doesn't he? Well, it's a strange um, thing because this guy's a lawyer, so they they know people in common through through the mm. through the district attorney and courts, and so he finds Corella's home number through mm. someone they they know, one of the assistant DAs, uh, Rolly Chabrier, or Chabria, I presume it's going to be pronounced, who we haven't seen since um, Fuzz. Oh, indeed, yeah. He was the person that Maya Maya called up to ask for <laughs> advice about oh, the book yeah. called Maya Maya, <laughs> which I still haven't read, even though I've actually got a copy of. I must must read that. So that's an interesting thing. Yeah. But they have to carry on this investigation, even though Corella knows in his heart of hearts mm. that, that Gerald Fletcher's committed this crime, presumably. They have to carry on with the investigation Absolutely. anyway. And they've got this diary from the murdered woman that has all this list of names and addresses in. And mm. a little code. And a little code. It's probably worth mentioning the reason why they think he, he did it, because there's no doubt that the burglar stabbed her. Yeah. It's more, had he stabbed her... Because yeah. it sounds like he just stabbed her once, didn't and then he? Ran off and then ran shot. off. Whereas it was actually she's, she's, she's disemboweled yeah, when she's found, like so, very uh, violently. So the, the the reason why the husband's under suspicion of finishing her off, kind of thing. Did he was he yeah. take advantage of this terrible situation? Because uh, yeah, by his own admission, he hated his wife. We've got little things like there's one chapter, chapter three, which is just a complete interview page for the DA interviewing the burglar who's caught, Ralph mm. Corwin, mm-hmm. before they send him off to a prison call that's nicknamed Calcutta, which is, I was trying to work out what the real world equivalent mm. of this would be. And the nearest I could figure out was that the Manhattan House of Detention in this period of time, before it was closed down and changed again in the mid-70s, was known as the tombs. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. Which is, I think, well featured in in other books and films mm. and things like that. And it's quite well known. So I think that might be the equivalent of that, but I'm not sure anyway. Mm. But we've got to talk about everyone's favourite blonde man, Bert Kling, oh, yeah. as well. Yeah. Because this isn't just a straightforward Corella book by any means. No, indeed. Kling's in it quite a lot, actually, isn't he? But he's in it. Be- he sort of gets himself in a situation because. Kling's been going out with Cindy Forrest since the incidents in 10 plus 1 where her father was killed. And as usual, what Kling does is when he comes across a uh, a witness or a family member is he asks them out. Of course he does. So, But they've been going together for a number of books now anyway. Although she's only appeared a couple of times. Hmm. 
but she splits up with him somewhere between the last time we've seen her and this book. Very sad. So he's in a weird mood. So along comes this eyewitness, Nora Simonov, at the start. And the first thing is, like, he's on the phone to her, like, well, you come and do an ID parade and have lunch with me? (laughs) It's like, yeah, thanks. That's helpful. You can see this going well. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, but uh, she seems to be succumbing to his charms despite having uh, a boyfriend, apparently. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Because you, you start, you you meant to think that it might be Fletcher. Yes, I think so. I yeah. think that's one of the, the games. Because she refuses to, there's some reason why she's mm. not with this person. And you're kind of, you're not really that clued in. And yeah, I don't know whether it was just me being really thick, but no, I you think got the impression that you think, only, oh, is it, is it Fletcher? Was she's she, the only red herring. Yeah, yeah. Because in, in yeah, she won't reveal who. And oh, yeah. Kling being Kling sort of tries to wheedle out of her who her boyfriend is because yeah. she says he's a doctor and he tries to trick her and says, oh, at this hospital in this place and she gets the details wrong. So he knows she's lying. Yeah. But he also then gets the snot kicked out of him by three men who, you don't, yeah. who um, yeah. tell him to leave her alone. In no uncertain terms. Yeah, mm. so he ends up with broken ribs in hospital just before Christmas. Lovely. Very nice. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, Bertram. But this is a proper. This is what I was talking about the foreshadowing books to come. Mm. One of Kling's problems is he's suspicious of everyone, isn't he? His girlfriends yeah. in the future. I think most of his relationships are ruined by his behaviour mm. and yeah. his suspicions. And you see it in this one because although he has right to be suspicious because he's been beaten up, yeah, you know he's sort of a bit funny from the start. Yeah, yeah. She doesn't give him all the information he wants, and he then he. He sneaks into a well, not sneaks into her apartment. He sneaks around her apartment, yeah. steals letters, and you wonder how official this is going to be. You know, I know he's been beaten up, and obviously they're entitled to investigate this crime, this assault yeah. on a police officer. But he's—it's very much the cling that's going to come. I think. Yeah. yeah. No, you're absolutely right. Yeah, it's fairly perhaps yeah, just a function of being a p- police officer, just naturally suspicious, really. Yeah. Uh, well, the fact that she keeps going out with him. Yeah, you know, you would. Um, he does. Think would have hoped it would yeah. be enough for him. Um, but at the same time, he thinks he's going to get back with Cindy Forrest during the course yes. of the book. They exchange gifts and everything, uh, and, and then she tickles off, never to be seen again. No, I don't think she is. Is she? No, I don't think so. No, she's not on my little list of reappearing characters. No. Ah oh, well. Oh, poor Bert. Um, yeah, McBain always got in trouble. I think I've mentioned this before. People were always writing to him or talking to him about why won't you give Bert a break? Why don't you let him be happy for a bit? It's like you don't do that. <laughs> There's a couple of my favourite things that McBain does in this book as well. I think appear in grand form for the first time. Mm. Uh, one of them is the narrator's voice. Oh yeah, do you spot the uh, Saturday night se- section? Yeah, where's that with all man. the asterisks in it. Yeah. Yeah, it's quite... Yeah. There was mad bits yeah. in there. And the, narr- the narrator just suddenly starts talking all about Saturday being, you know, in really sarcastic terms yes. about the, how amazing Saturday night is and having all these capital letters with all the little asterisks in between to, to really blow up the notion of this, like, flashing lights, you know, good times, but... yeah. No, I've always loved those those little rants that he goes off on. They're, hmm. they're fantastic. Yeah, this is perhaps uh, he'd had a Evan Hunter had had a night planned <laughs> to go out, and he was uh, yeah he couldn't make it. So yes, <laughs> on the typewriter, hammering yeah. the shift and eight key. Got <laughs> those asterisks in there. Mm. <laughs> it also involves a gag that ends up with a joke about Spiro Agnew. Oh yes, a name I know probably only through. American comedies. I don't actually know anything about Spiro Agnew particularly. Just Nixon's vice president. He was, is, yeah. Is that right? I yeah, assume. and then he ended very ignominiously, mm. I think, the, the year after this was written, possibly. Yeah. He had to resign. Yeah, he Indeed. did over some scandal or other. Yeah, I think he was taking kickbacks to, for, from developers and things like that to pass things through, or city <laughs> ordinances or whatever it was, <laughs> wherever he was based. Gosh, like Nixon's. Uh, Mm. <laughs> Nixon's era was troubled some way. Imagine that. But uh, yeah, it can't have been a good looker because uh, Evan Hunter makes a joke, or Ed McBain makes a joke about uh, about turning into Spiro Agnew as a bad <laughs> thing. 
Something else I thought there was in this book, quite lots of blue language, isn't there? Very oh, there's a lot very, of blue language. Very, very uh, naughty swear words. Indeed there is, and that should perhaps act as a little trigger warning for anyone who is offended, mm. because we do have to discuss some of this, because some of the, the blue language is directed towards the notion of, as it turns out, Sadie Collins, which is the name mm. that Sarah Fletcher is using when she's meeting all these people in her address book. Mm. So none of these people they go and interview recognise the name at all, but when they see the picture, they're like, oh yeah, that's Sadie Collins. I was hooked up with her for some real good times. Mm. Mm. Yeah, She was a wild one. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah, She was also, and I apologise for using these terms, but they're in the book, she was described as a crazy bitch, mm. and also, rather more dramatically, I think, as a... Do I say this with the American pronunciation, or do I say it with the, uh, I, uh, the way I'd say it? You can't say it with the American pronunciation. It always sounds silly. It does sound a bit silly. Well, I'll say it. I'll say it both ways, and so that way I've really, really hammered it home. Mm. Um, a stupid twat. Mm. Yeah. Or a stupid twat, as they would say in America. Indeed. And I, I don't really understand quite because I don't know how that figures in the power ratings of mm. swear words in America. Yeah, I'm not sure. You know, is it is it worse than the c word? Presumably not. It's fairly high in this country, I would say, isn't it? Well, it's such a sort of, uh, sort of snappy-sounding mm. word, isn't it? Mm. Such a sharp, sort of yeah, hard-sounding word. Yeah, yeah. Pretty much all of her suitors do manage to come out with some kind of little bit of vile misogyny uh, when when prodded a bit, don't they? Yeah. yeah, they're all quite happy to have had a really good time with yeah. her. Yeah. Uh... The great unknown that runs through the book is why she was mm. r- running around with these fellas and having a note in the. In the Absolutely. book and a weird code and nobody really knows. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, it's kind of, that's the, the ongoing mystery, isn't it? Yeah. And yeah, and the surveillance is, is going on with a few of them. There's a good sequence, just while we're on the subject of swear words and blue language, uh, where Arthur Brown comes back to report on his surveillance and he's reading out his report to Pete Burns. And at one point he, he says he tried to follow the follow him into a restaurant and he was refused service basically he was told the place was full and there was no tables and he makes a point of saying it's because I'm black basically mm. and and Pete Burns is like is there anything we can nail them on <laughs> and he says just uh, Brown just tried to prove anything Brown said stupid pricks Burns said <laughs> it's like yep, yep down to earth <laughs> and then when he finds out that three guys jumped uh, Berkling which sort of comes at the end of that Burns just says sons of bitches <laughs> He's <laughs> a, a man of few, few words in this book. Excellent contributions, though. Yeah, but it turns out as well that one of these people that they visit is is a woman, and and uh, Sadie Collins has been carrying on same sex relationships as well. Hmm. But out of all other people they talk to, she's the only one who looks at the code in this book when they show her it, hmm. and she's like, "Well, it's pretty obvious, yeah, because that stands just you know that's the place where I met her, and it's got those initials. That's presumably that place that she yeah. went to, that place, mm. and they all feel like complete doofuses. <laughs> yeah, she's the most helpful witness really, because because she's the only person that Sarah Fletcher's confided in that her husband was mm-hmm. unfaithful and yeah. making her quite unhappy, and so yeah. therefore that suddenly. That's reinforces the fact that right, so they this they, they yeah. start to straighten That's it out. That's where after all, that all point. the motivation kind of um, suddenly becomes. Yeah, really they suddenly got, they've suddenly got motive, haven't they? They always had opportunity, uh, and they've suddenly got uh, the, yeah. the motive. Both the motive of the vic- the victim and her actions, and and then yeah, the motive of of, of the killer as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really. and they, they stop pursuing the. Uh, these names in the books after her, possibly because yeah, because they don't really right, yeah. need to anymore. And, and then Corella re- yeah, realizes that the uh, yeah the, all the bars that Fletcher took him to are all the bars that she'd met these people. So he's like, he's definitely guilty. Why would he be taking those? One of those bars that that Corella gets taken to is the one where he, this this girl comes onto him. So they're all different sorts of bars, aren't they? Some proper sleazy yeah. places, some violent places. One one gay bar. Um, but there's one in particular where these girls, this girl comes on to him and she's like, if you want to get past me, you have to, you have to say the password. And he's like, oh, what's the password? And she says, kiss me. And he's like, I'm not saying that. She says, well, it's just, it's just the password. <laughs> so he says it. And of course she plants of a, course she a massive kiss on him. Which, and suddenly Corella's like, 
who, when did I last kiss someone who wasn't my wife? It's like, that's so weird. Mm. Should I tell her? It's just such an odd thing for him. But it's, it's such a brilliant comeback how he gets back at her, really, by claiming that he's got a mouthful of sores. <laughs> it's, uh, hmm. Yeah, it does the trick, doesn't it? Yeah, it's, it's quite good. Ooh, a, I will just say at this point, if anyone's wondering why the audio quality is probably different, well, certainly the ambient quality, mm. it's because we have the back doors open today, because one, it's quite a nice day, and two, we're round at Steve-O's house, so if you're hearing different sounds that you've never heard, I'm wondering why the vibe's different, because <laughs> we're in a different place. Mm, we are. Yeah. yeah. And if you're wondering why sometimes we go off mic, it's because we're leaning down to tickle the cap <laughs> as well. So, just just so as you know. Anyway, but let's let's just summarise where we're up to about three quarters of the way through this. Corella's surveilling Gerald Fletcher because he is instinctively believing that he's done it. Yes. Kling has been beaten up by three guys because he's been talking to this girl who was the original eyewitness. And ostensibly, those are the two main threads. Yeah. So there's a lot of stuff going on, a lot of following. There's a bunch of stuff about how the technicians put bugs into his, the apartment. When they yeah. finally discover that he's seeing another woman, yeah. they they put bugs in her apartment. And there's a big section of transcript based on that as well, hmm. which is quite interesting. Yeah, it's all it t- is, typewriter yeah. text, yeah. So, well, Fletcher gets wise to the bugs, doesn't he? He, yeah. he goes all peculiar halfway through the transcript, and you're like, ah. Where, what was he doing at that point? He, he starts was making deliberate the, pronouncements to the... Like uh, praising Corella, doesn't he, all yeah. of a sudden? And, uh, yeah, they, they, they can work out he's by the bookcase where the the bugs were. But, um, yeah, you wouldn't have thought they would have got... I don't know, they, they easily get all the the, uh, the court orders for planting all this. And I'm not sure they would have done... Because they've no, they've no reason to believe that he's done it, really. Other than a hunch. Yeah, this, it's, the book suggests that it's up to Pete Burns to, mm. to authorise it, but I'm sure it isn't. No, you'd have to go before the judge, wouldn't you? That's true. I'm sure he did, just didn't want to get too bogged, bogged down, down and all that. Yeah, and yeah. just wanted to get, get us to it. Get a good story going. It's yeah, fair yeah. enough. Because they and also get, get to bug a car as well. Yes. Yeah. I think he just wanted to get onto the interesting procedural bit about explaining the details of how the bugs work and yeah. <laughs> changing the batteries and all that business. It's interesting. It gives Corella the opportunity to go into disguise a couple of times. Oh, my God. That's totally crazy, that, as well. It sounds like he's got the worst disguise ever. (laughs) This is when he's tailing him in the department store. Yeah. He's in the same lift with him. He is. At one point. Steve Corella, master of disguise. Yeah. yeah, When I was reading that scene, I thought, this is ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I'll try and find the description of what he wears for the disguise. It's in chapter 12, I believe. He's got a blonde wig and a moustache and glasses on or something. It all sounds a little bit silly. Yeah, Fletcher knew exactly what he looked like. So he was wearing a false moustache stuck to his upper lip with spirit gum, a wig with longer hair than his own and of a different colour, a dirty blonde whereas his own was brown, and a pair of sunglasses. <laughs> it's, it's Christmas. It's The sky's grey... He does say the disguise he was certain would not have fooled Fletcher at close range, but he did not intend to get that close. He has oh. been in the same lift with him. Yeah, he has to oh, try and... closer can you get? <laughs> he has to try and work his way past, doesn't he? And then, and what's even worse is then he follows him into the uh, lingerie department and has to hang around there while he goes <laughs> and buys in the a load department. of lacy underwear. Yes. Anyway, yeah. Yeah, that's a bit of a silly scene, I suppose. Uh, that's quite fun, yeah. Yeah. Um, a little bit of relative uh, levity. Yeah, but it's also, it's funny because this book also contains a throwback to the last really snowy story, which was Fuzz. Mm. So Corella can reflect on the only time he liked snow was when there was enough of it around to put him out when he was on fire <laughs> that time. I've just remembered as well a totally unrelated matter, which I thought was quite interesting. Go on. In, in that uh, this book pretty much absolutely ages Corella as well. Yes, it does. Oh, almost definitively, which is very, very rare because you're all almost left, you know, it could be anywhere between X age and, you know, yeah. whatever age you think. But yeah, because he, um, he ends up chatting with one of the guys on the. Uh, uh, the barm, the barman of barman. the saloon. Yeah, when they start yeah. talking about uh, having fought in the Second World War, I was surprised about that actually when, when I came across it again. So it pretty much ages Corella at like forty, 
45, 47 years old. Which is funny because I'm sure he seems younger than that later on, doesn't he? So this book is 1972, and I think if you roughly go for the if you, if the you, dating of these books, as you would assume, they are they take place in the mm. year they're written. So 27 years since the end of the Second World War, and if he was, say, 20 in 1945, yeah. a very mm. young man, he would be 47. Ostensibly, he's, he's Evan Hunter's age. Mm. Yeah. Which is... Not surprising, really. I suppose, yeah. But yeah, yeah it is. It's it's funny that that's the first because there's been references to their military backgrounds mm. before. But it's it's this seems like the first time you've really just gone World War Two. Yeah, and it, perhaps that's culturally by that point people were talking about it in a bit more sort of those terms. Mm. The generation gap was such that to say World War Two seems a bit more stark in this setting than it would have done 10 years previously mm. and certainly 15 years before. Well, in the later books, they get, start to get vague about which war and you're led to believe, was it Vietnam? Yeah, I think sometimes uh, they even specify it occasionally. I think by some of the very latest ones, a couple of people who've previously been mm. in Vietnam and now have now been in the Gulf War. Yeah, um. Um, yeah which, is, which is obviously an interesting way, but it, it kind of gives you a... Yeah, I thought I just thought it was. Yeah, yeah no, you're absolutely right. I'd forgotten about that. And the good thing is, he's having that chat with um, this barman, who's quite a good character, because he's insistent that everyone knows what the words mean that he's using. Yeah. He sort of says, "Relentless." You know what that word means? Relentless. <laughs> and it's frantic. That's the word, all right. Frantic. Fortitude. You know what that weird word means? Fortitude. <laughs> and it just keeps going on like that. That was a glorious war. You know what that word means? Glorious. <laughs> I wonder if he's a character that uh, McBain had met at some into, yeah. yeah, I thought, I've got to get that guy, yeah. He's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, there's not masses of real-world references in this book, but obviously World War Two mm. is, is a big one. Well, well yeah, that, there's minor As they go. occurrence. <laughs> yeah. um, I mentioned Spiro Agnew. There's a few references to music, because Nora Simonov sort of goes all daydreamy when she hears someone play, a band playing a version of Something mm. by the Beatles. Oh, yeah, she does, doesn't she? And also there's references to a medley of songs that were all covered by Frank Sinatra as mm. well. Ebb Tide, Strangers in the Night, and Where or When. I mean, those are all songs done by lots of people, but I well, think it's ostensibly it's a Sinatra yeah. thing. And the other things I spotted, uh, he talks about Euripides, the Greek tragedian. <laughs> I think that's how you say tragedian. I I, I, I'd probably go for tragedian, but I've no idea. Well, I'm going for tragedian. No, I'm not going to say it. I can't, even, I can't even repeat it. So there we go. So an old Greek fella. Yep. And the other one is he talks about Nora Simonov having studied art at Cooper Union in NYC, hmm. which is where he himself, Evan Hunter, studied art for a year. Ah. Before he went off to uh, war. Oh, right. And he came back and he was like, I want to be a writer now, not an artist. So There you go. Mm. So um, there's a very specific reference. Fantastic. And that's about it for, for real world references. There's no particular stabs at any other authors or no. critics in this one. No. Yeah, he doesn't seem to have so much of an axe to grind uh, this time. But, it, would, uh, it would give me great pleasure if we read the next book and I've forgotten that there's a whole chapter attacking Newgate calendar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which, Every time I try and conjure up that fellow's name, I come up with something else that I think is his name, but it isn't. I was going to call him Highgate Cemetery before. <laughs> sure. Would not have been right. Yeah, well, he's about as, ch- as cheery as Highgate <laughs> Cemetery, is, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> Highgate Cemetery. So there we go. Anyway, I mean, and, and this is where I think your sombre thing comes in. As we as we wind down to the end, basically, Corella doesn't catch this guy so much mm. as catch him at the moment of breakdown. Mm. where he, following an argument, confesses. Mm. We're well past spoilers now, really. And it ends so sort of... It's a proper long, drawn-out, mm. camera-pan-out, fade-type thing, isn't it? Of He resignedly goes and arrests him, knowing that what he thought to be true is true. And it, yeah, it's, somber's definitely the word for it. Yeah, which I, I suppose, if you're... Newgate thingy that counts as an anticlimax, but I, I I think it's actually rather than having some kind of generic sort of chase and dramatic capture or something, I, I think it, it really works in the the book's favour. Yeah, especially contrasted against the fact that it is happens on Christmas Eve, mm. literally just before the clock ticks over to Absolutely, Christmas Day. Yeah, and so you know, Carrillo is totally sort of resignedly like, oh, there we go then. Basically, <laughs> yeah. No, I thought the end was good. 
Well, they cap it all off then. There's like a final paragraph as well, which is yeah, even more depressing. It is, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just to put the seal on it. And I think what what I find quite funny, I don't know about your edition, Morgan, but the editions that Steve and I have, it's like there is no end papers yeah, at all. Exactly the same. It's literally this. there's nothing afterwards. No more adverts for books, not even a blank page like there normally is. Yeah. It's just, like, just that's to it. Make sure you end on a massive downer. <laughs> <laughs> so there's another spoiler. But uh Yeah. yeah. I think people will have got that. <laughs> yeah. If they haven't read it already, we'll have ruined it for them. But if they have, mm. they'll know anyway. I think we're really about the time we need to start summing this one up mm. as an entry in the old canon. I'm going to use a proper, um, I was going to say typewriter then, I mean calculator, because it's nearby on top of the Georges Simenon book in Steve-O's house. But I will pass Steve-O a, a printout today of... Um, well, we couldn't wheel um, no, we couldn't get Kenneth round Yeah, or he's... fit down the alleyway. No, and I wasn't going to string the cables across the road no, either. No, so a bit dangerous. I need to bring Kenneth's output to you. For, in fact, well, Get that. Oh. I can give you a copy each, in fact. So you... Oh, there fantastic. You so you... Get that, right. So would you want to assess again for the listening people what we're at trend-wise on the Well, trend-wise, we're a bit erratic at the moment. A bit up and down, isn't it? It's more plods along. It's a bit... Uh... Uh, razor teeth up and down this at the moment, true. but we're currently on on a, a little upward oh, curve, yeah, which is are, uh, yeah. exciting. Hail, hail the gan! It says there. Hail, hail the gan! Yeah. Well, I can only the, fit so much the on, gan, on the uh, dot, on the dot, graph. Dot, dot. They can mean anything you want. Dot 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 dot. Hail, but, hail the Ganges is a river. <laughs> in the hands of a good author, a dot 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 can mean anything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Steve-O, come on, so, then. Yeah, I'm going so, to you first this time. Well, uh, yeah, possibly. I, I kind of summed it up to start with, didn't I, really? But, uh, yeah, a, a sombre, serious book of uh, a cat, cat and mouse with some extreme language at times, I thought. Did uh, it offend your sensibility? Well, no, it didn't at all, but uh, you, it yeah, kind of shocks you when you read it and you think uh, the early 70s. But anyway, uh, yes, no, I thought it was a thoroughly enjoyable book and... Uh, I, I remembered thinking I, uh, uh, I rated it highly before I started reading it again, and uh, it, it delivered. So in terms of police shields, I am going to say 90. 90? Mm. Excellent. Oh, we haven't heard that number for some time, I don't think. Yeah, I think it's, uh, yeah, a good one. Okay, I'm just uh, entering that into the remote Kenneth-powered um, machine thing. So I'll go next, and... I too had been looking forward to this one because I seem to recall it being a, a real solid entry into the into the canon and I wasn't disappointed on rereading it. I like a number of elements that are pure 87th precinct in terms of the future of the, the series, the behaviour of Kling. I like knowing what's to come, but obviously at the time, if you read this before anything else, it's like, well, there's Kling being a bit weird, but... It, Mm-hmm. I, I like the way these things develop and, and that's part of the joy of reading back when you've read later on as well so that's quite good I like the simplicity of this one in its own way there's a few good moments it's it's fairly light on, on characters it's not full of cops Like certainly mm. not like Hail Hail the Gang's all here yeah. there's a couple of references to Bob O'Brien and Carl uh, Capek just in passing, but mainly... You don't even... Cotton Hawes isn't even mentioned once in this book, I don't mm. think. And so he's... No, he, he's not. No, he's yeah, not. not even in, in passing. There's not even a sequence about explaining which cops were on holiday or anything <laughs> like that. Oh, I do also like the bit where Corella tries to convince Maya to give him Christmas oh, Day because yeah. <laughs> he's on duty on, on Christmas Day. And uh, Maya's like... We celebrate Christmas too at home. Yeah. You come round every year. <laughs> what are you thinking? So I'm going to go in, perhaps not as high as Steve, but I'm going to go a solid 85 police shields with this Whoa. one. I do like it. And I hand over to Morgan Brown for the next stage of Sp- assessment. Splendid. Yeah, well, uh, echoing your comments, really, I, I remembered it very fondly and uh, wasn't disappointed on, on another reading. Um Although there are fewer characters than a lot of the novels, I think the characters that are in there are explored well. There's some really yeah. good psychology. I like the the bleaker, cynical tone that it strikes, which I always enjoy. And in, in, in when you get that again later on in the series too, yeah, I think it's an absolute corker. Um, and I always really enjoy uh, 
disagreeing with Highgate Cemetery. So I'm, I'm going to go somewhere between you. I'll go for 88 police shields, 88 I think. police shields. Wowzers. Okay, let's see what that turns up. That turns up an overall score in police shields for 1972's Sadie When She Died of 88 police shields. Yes. And resident statistician Stephen Royston here is... Um, yeah, it might possibly have just, on a graph. Might just have pipped uh, King's Ransom, maybe. Ooh, God, <laughs> must be close, mustn't it? Must be. Well, I think... So I, I think our top five, then, because that would definitely... Oh, this would be an interesting rundown. Yeah. Go for uh, it. It's very, quite difficult to tell without... I know, it's a rubbish graph. I really need to improve the um, uh, numbering on it. Well, in no particular order, because they're all fairly close yeah, together, close. to be honest. Uh, cop Hater, uh, King's Ransom... Uh, which always sticks out, doesn't it? I yeah. think the heckler. Oh which yeah, is a good one. Uh, Doll. Yeah, we enjoyed that one. Um, and then probably Sadie when she died. Now to a top five. And then we've maybe Excellent. got to see them. Uh, lady, lady, I did it, and maybe Fuzz knocking around there as well. Mm. Excellent um, stuff. All well, there we go. So, well, what will happen next is my question. And it was interesting you mentioned there uh, the heckler, because oh, our next book that we'll be looking at. What's the next one? Well, he's been in the heckler. Oh, he's well, been in fuzz. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Let's hear it for the deaf man. All oh, right. He's back. Excellent. Join us at the next podcast for that, but also join us on the bonus podcast episode for some uh, daft chatter about 1972 in general, but also a look at the book covers, editions, and. Stuff about casting the Fantasy 87th Precinct series, Bob O'Brien. And until next time, I'm going to say au revoir. So long. Fare thee well.